Welcome to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm joined by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. Joe, what are we going to talk about today? Hello, Jessica. Happy week. Happy early week. I know we spend a lot of time on this podcast, Passing Judgment, talking about the intersection of law and politics, and as Jessica says, a lot of things in between. And today we're going to talk about the branch of our government where law and politics are supposed to make for uneasy bedfellows, and that's the Supreme Court. The court is designed to be impartial, but is it so in practice? Like everything else, it seems, in our modern divided society, the court is appearing to be increasingly partisan over time. So let's talk about the Supreme Court and judicial neutrality, as well as how that may impact what comes next in the fight against encroachment on our freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution. So, Jessica, we've heard recently a number of justices talking about judicial neutrality. They've been talking very publicly in the media. Are they just trying to sell books? What is going on? Is there some kind of ulterior motive here? Uh, Yes and yes. So you ask, though, a very serious question, which is we've now heard in the last 10 days or so from about a third of the court saying versions of we're not just politicians with robes on and you should take us seriously. And in fact, what we do is totally different from politics. So what's going on here? I mean, I think in some ways the court is facing a little bit of an existential crisis. We have Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Stephen Breyer, Justice Clarence Thomas, obviously two conservative justices, one liberal justice, all saying basically, my life's work is not for nothing. I'm not a political hack. You should trust me and you should trust my employer. You should trust the institution of the court. And I think they're all saying it for slightly different reasons, but it all boils down to this idea of what's happened in the court recently. We've had some bruising confirmation battles. Think back to Justice Amy Coney Barrett and how she was nominated to the court. What was that? 72 hours after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. We just marked the one year anniversary of Justice Ginsburg's passing. Let's think back to Justice Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings in the early 90s, where there was all of that controversy surrounding allegations by Anita Hill that Justice Thomas had engaged in, let's say, sexually inappropriate behavior in the workplace. And then we have Justice Stephen Breyer, who is being called upon now to retire, and he's just indicating that he has no particular interest in it. So We have two conservative justices who were kind of birthed into being justices as a result of really controversial uh, confirmation hearings. And then we have a justice at the end of his career, Justice Breyer, who I think is is holding on and saying, you know, I don't want to leave. But they're all saying, look, we do something different from your elected officials. We do something different from... um, from the president or from your members of uh, Congress. And Joe, I just have to say the irony of where Justice Barrett decided to tell us, I just want to tell you the Supreme Court is not made up of partisan hacks. She said this at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville next to Senator Mitch McConnell. Let's remember that Senator Mitch McConnell is the same majority leader who held open the seat that became vacant when Justice Scalia passed away during the Obama administration and then rushed through Justice Barrett's confirmation 
during the end of the Trump administration. And so for her to talk about how the court is neutral and that they're not just a bunch of politicians next to Senator Mitch McConnell is just the timing, the optics, the who, the when, the where, it's just all off, Joe. Yeah, it might be, Jessica. So let me play devil's advocate here. Barrett is new to the court. She's the newest justice. As you just said a second ago, she was rushed to the bench just last autumn. That was mere weeks after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and after Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings on what would have been President Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland. He wound up as attorney general where he currently serves. Now, Barrett, she's been a judge since 2017. But let's keep in mind, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been a Supreme Court justice for 24 years by the time that Amy Coney Barrett first wore a robe of any kind on any kind of bench. So she's relatively new at this. So why not give her the benefit of the doubt here? Yeah, that's a very fair question. And I don't mean to say we know how she's going to rule for the rest of her tenure on the court, but we have some really good indications of at least how she's going to rule in the short term. Let's look at, I know we've talked about it a lot, but I think it's a very consequential decision. The Supreme Court just weeks ago allowed Texas's restrictive abortion law, which bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, which in no way can be seen as consistent with Roe versus Wade. She voted with the majority to allow that law to go into effect. We also saw her votes on some of the cases dealing with COVID restrictions and challenges to those restrictions on the claim that they violated religious freedom. Um, and we've also you know, seen her tenure as a lower court judge. I think that there's no question that she's a very conservative jurist, and there's no question that that's why she was picked and that that's why she was rushed through the process. And as I said before, it's just... It's just tone deaf to try and tell people I'm not a partisan next to one of the most partisan people in the country, Senator Mitch McConnell. And Joe, I wrote a piece about this where I said it's like Bill Clinton asking to be introduced for a speech by Monica Lewinsky. And the topic of the speech is, you know, that everybody should be really careful about creating a sexually hostile or uncomfortable work environment. It's just, it can't be the right venue. It can't be the right company. And frankly, I'm not sure it's the right message. And if you really want to say this, and if you really want to convince the American public of this, don't rely on people in the room. Open this up. Open it up to the press. There were some members of the press there, but make this a public event where you really explain why the court isn't partisan. So look, let's not pretend that we know every decision she's going to make for the next you know, decades, because she will likely be on the court for decades. But let's also not pretend that we don't know why she was picked. All right. Well, that's some insight into Justice Barrett setting aside the cognitive dissonance of the location and the message. But why is this happening now? Like you said, we've seen a lot of these justices speaking out in the media or at these places like the McConnell Center. You know, they're saying essentially, hey, you can trust us. Everything's fine. We're not partisan. We've heard this from about a third of the Supreme Court at this point. Yeah. What's the timing? I think in part it's that Typically, this is actually a very quiet time on the Supreme Court. It's September. We're having this conversation in September. Usually, the court has been on hiatus all summer. 
And we're just starting to think about the next term. But this was actually a very busy summer on the court. There was a lot of activity in something that we've referred to as the shadow docket, which is essentially these emergency appeals that come up to the Supreme Court where they can make decisions and, in fact, in some ways make law without the benefit of full briefings, full records below in the trial court, in the lower court of appeals, and without the benefit of oral arguments. So... Um, we've heard a lot from the court. It really has been busy. And a lot of what we've heard about has had serious political implications. Again, the Texas abortion law. Let's think about the court's decision with respect to the remain in Mexico policy that President Trump implemented. Let's think about the court's decision again on the shadow docket this summer dealing with President Biden's eviction moratorium. So, In part, I think it's trying to justify what's just happened. And in part, it's trying to justify what's about to happen, Joe. I mean, we're going into uh, a big Supreme Court season where we already know they're going to hear another big abortion case, this one out of Mississippi. We already know there's going to be a big gun control case. We already know there's a big case dealing with affirmative action. We may see other cases dealing with this matchup between religious freedom and freedom from discrimination. So look, all of this meaning our three branches of government and respect for the judicial branch really does depend on us respecting the branch. They don't have you know, a military really to enforce their decisions. I mean, we've seen in some cases that thinking back to Brown versus Board of Education, where eventually law enforcement did have to be sent in to enforce their decisions, but they have the power of the pen or the keyboard now. And all of this really falls apart if we don't continue to hold on to the belief that they just aren't politicians. And so I I think that's what a lot of this is about. Yeah, maybe, Jessica, I know you love your sports references. Maybe these are the preseason <laughs> games for the upcoming season. We all know that in just a few weeks now, the new Supreme Court term is coming up. These are some preseason games. Maybe there's a bit of managing of expectations coming because there's some really big cases on some hot-button issues coming down the pike very, very soon here. Now, I want to reference that McConnell Center thing because there's a specific quote here. Justice Barrett, just over a week ago when she was speaking in the McConnell Center, that's the University of Louisville in Kentucky, she said, quote, My goal today is to convince you that this court is not comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. So, Jessica, speaking more broadly and using her exact words, this leads me to the question, are all judges just partisan hacks at this point? No. And I know some listeners are going to say either, you know, have I lost my mind? Did I listen to what I've just been saying for the last few minutes? Or have I listened to our previous episodes? Or do I just have my eyes closed to what's going on? And there is something that, Joe, we've said before, and I do want to emphasize it. One, we're talking about nine federal judges, where the federal judiciary, in fact, is made up of hundreds of judges. And particularly when it comes to district court judges, those are the trial court judges, and even some lower court of appeals judges, meaning we're talking to you from California, we're part of the Ninth Circuit. These are judges and justices that don't daily deal with abortion or gun control or affirmative action or religious freedom. There are a lot of decisions that are made every day by federal judges who are appointed by Republicans, who are appointed by Democrats, and they don't have partisan goals. They Their goal is to be good public servants. Their goal is to go to work 
and look at the facts of a new question and apply those facts to the existing law. And what Supreme Court justices do is just somewhat different. And it almost by definition has to bring in more of your worldviews and sometimes political views because so many of the questions that they confront are either matters of first impression or where lower court judges have split, where there's a so-called circuit split where some judges think one thing, other judges think something else, and they have to come in and say, okay, here's the law of the land. They just have more of those decisions that um, make, you know, that make the news that are hot button political topics. But I don't want people to come away from listening to these podcasts and think, oh, well, we just can't trust federal judges, because that's simply not the case. And look, there are some federal judges who I think get it wrong and get it wrong because they're concerned about their political worldview. And there are a lot who get it right every single day, uh, either because of or despite or regardless of their political views. Judges are humans just like us with some big bills from law school. So let's talk more specifically about some of those hot button issues that you mentioned. They're going to come before the Supreme Court in the upcoming term. Now, these are cases that will address abortion rights, LGBTQ rights. Now, I've done some reading on this, Jessica. So first, I've heard about this Texas Solicitor General, the lawyer who designed SB8, Texas's new highly restrictive abortion law. Did he really say the solution here is for women to stop having sex? Yeah, he really did, Joe. So I do have a piece coming out on MSNBC that I'll link to in the show notes and in the description of the episode. And he basically said, well, look, don't worry so much about these reliance interests on Roe v. Wade, which is, of course, the 1973 case that said women have a constitutionally protected right to obtain access to an abortion. He said, look, because a lot of women now are probably just, and I'm paraphrasing, I want to be clear, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, you know, women now are just having unprotected sex or having sex with not enough protection. And so if the law changes, they'll just change their behavior. So nothing to worry about. Now, a couple of things. One, for people who are wondering whether or not these abortion restrictions are sometimes about trying to restrict a woman's freedom, I would say the answer is sometimes yes, they are. And this argument indicates as much. The other thing to remember, of course, is that there is no birth control that's 100% effective. So let's not pretend that there's just a bunch of women who have decided, oh, I'll just use that less effective method of birth control because there's Roe versus Wade. So really, you know, what's the cause for concern here? The other things, of course, and this is not an exhaustive list, Joe, but let's also remember there are plenty of women who want to get pregnant and then there are problems. There are either, you know, very significant fetal abnormalities that could lead to it being medically impossible to carry a child to term. There are situations where a pregnancy can cause a threat to the health of the mother. Again, those are wanted pregnancies. So you can't just simply use this illusory 100% effective form of birth control. And, um, you know, what Jonathan Mitchell also doesn't mention here is that there are no exceptions for rape or incest in this Texas law. He's talking about, um, we should be clear that his arguments are part of an amicus brief filed with respect to the Mississippi law that we've referenced. But if the argument is just use birth control, then 
the logical extension of his argument here is, well, just don't get raped. Just don't be the victim of incest. And so just change not only your behavior, but other people's criminal behavior and change medicine as well. So this is, um, this is a, just a stun to me, stunning argument, but at least it's being said out loud now. Yeah, that's something that's a trend we're seeing a lot. The uh, quiet parts are being said out loud. And Jessica, as a side note, when you do find out that 100% effective birth control situation, let me know. It sounds like an exciting business opportunity to invest in. Now, Jessica, I've done a little more reading, and this is where things get increasingly troubling for me. Now, Jonathan Mitchell, that's the he we were talking about before, that former Texas solicitor general. He was the architect of SB8, that abortion law in Texas. He dropped some comments into an amicus brief that he recently filed with the Supreme Court about decisions protecting gay rights. Now, that's moving out of the abortion realm into the other hot-button issue of gay rights. So, Jessica, can you tell me what he said and what cases involving LBGTQ rights have to do with abortion cases exactly? Yeah, so what he basically said is that there are two big decisions. One is a case called Lawrence versus Texas that was decided in 2003, and another is the Obergefell decision, the gay marriage decision that was decided in 2015. And the Lawrence decision essentially overturned a state law that criminalized sodomy. The Obergefell decision in 2015, as I said, um, found that there is a fundamental right to marry and that you cannot exclude same-sex couples from being able to avail themselves of that fundamental right. And what he said is that there's really no constitutional grounding for those decisions and that they should be overturned along with Roe. And again, saying the quiet parts out loud, it's clear that this assault on reproductive choice is not going to end with reproductive choice, that there are um, more freedoms and rights that will be next on the, I guess, potential chopping block. And what he's really saying here is that the Constitution doesn't specifically say there's a right for same-sex couples to marry. And this is a in part based on his view that we should read the Constitution narrowly. And the idea is that judges have gone too far afield by reading into provisions of the Constitution, for instance, the right to obtain access to an abortion or the right to marry. And I think the response to that is that the Constitution is this document that provides us with guideposts, right? It provides us with some basic guidance, but the people who wrote the Constitution and or the amendments, they can't have thought of every potential issue that would come up. They gave us broad language. It's our job to interpret that language. And what he's really saying here is, I don't like how you've interpreted it. You went too far. Um, This is vintage Justice Scalia. And he, in fact, clerked for Justice Scalia. So that's very consistent. So Joe, I think that's what the argument here is with respect to uh, why he's moving from a abortion to LGBTQ rights. All right, Jessica. So we've heard a lot about the court in today's episode. We've heard about partisanship and impartiality. But as with most questions, questions lead to other questions. So I'm left with this particular question, Jessica. So what, if anything, can be done if the court is out of step with your viewpoint? So we don't vote for Supreme Court justices, and we have essentially no say in who winds up on the bench eventually. If the court is ideologically out of step with the majority of American society, or at a minimum, with one's own personal beliefs, what, if anything, can people do about that? 
Oh, this is such a good question. Um, a couple of answers, Joe. I mean, one, there are a lot of calls to reform the Supreme Court. We have a previous episode with Professor Dan Epps where we talked about some of that. And he's at, really at the forefront of those calls to reform. And, you know, what are things you could do? You could impose rotating term limits. Um, you could do something called jurisdiction stripping, basically taking some issues away from Supreme Court justices. I think that brings up other potential problems. But all of that is really, really hard to accomplish. I mean, right now, I think the best hope is really to fight in Congress and to fight in state legislatures to try and either make sure that states keep the protections that they have or don't pass laws that are restrictive, restrictive of access to reproductive choice, restrictive of the rights of the LGBT community so they don't enjoy full um, citizenship, the full rights that uh, America has to offer. So it's really, I think, taking the fight to our lawmakers and trying to kind of hold the dam. And that's basically where we are right now, I think, on a lot of big issues that people care about. We know what the court's going to do, at least in the short and medium term. So let's try not to end on so much of a negative note. Let's try and end on a more positive note, which is, look, our state lawmakers, our federal lawmakers, they all have their jobs because we vote for them. And we do have a lot of power to put pressure on them to let them know um, what we care about. So I think that's where we are kind of indirectly with respect to the Supreme Court. Well, thank you so very much, Jessica. Remember, everyone, at least at this point, we remain with a representative government. So participate, stay engaged. Jessica, thank you so much for helping us clear this up a bit today. Thank you, Joe. And thank you for making it possible for us to have these conversations. It is absolutely my pleasure, Jessica. Listeners, you can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and elsewhere at In-Depth Day and also at www.indepthday.com. You can find our lovely podcast, Passing Judgment, on Twitter at Passing Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you, as always, to our listeners for your support. We really do love sharing these conversations and topics with you. We look forward to having so many more in the future, so have a great day, everybody. 